0: Welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nike Anani and I am your host. This week's episode is with Derek Ashong, also known as DNA. DNA is a producer, a musician, an entrepreneur with a really fascinating background and I brought him on the podcast to unpack the role of entertainment, entrepreneurship and culture. And he completely... (laughs) Surpassed all my expectations because the conversation ended up being so multi dimensional. We ended up talking about bridging arts and science, bridging Africa and the world using entertainment, the need for us to re envision our identity, our culture, our interpretation of religion, the role of women. It was so rich and dense and authentic, and it truly moved me. I think so, the only area we didn't delve on was African politics, and (laughs) we jointly agreed that it was for the better, but I would just encourage you to listen in and share with your network, get your favorite beverage, and just soak in the wisdom that is DNA. Thank you, and enjoy. Hi Derek, I'm really excited about this conversation today. Welcome to The Connected Generation.
1: Thank you, Nike, it's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So today, Derek, you're a content producer, you're an entrepreneur, you've had quite an interesting journey. Do you want to tell us more about your story? Yeah,
1: for sure. I'm originally from Accra, Ghana. I was born there and raised partially in Accra, partially in New York, partially in the Middle East. I built my career at the intersection of sort of technology and media entertainment. So I got to work with a lot of luminaries in Hollywood, got to work with some cool people in Silicon Valley, got to do some really interesting stuff around interactive media and scaled sort of these interesting hybrid media assets to, I think, 300 million households around the world. And then got really intrigued by how do you speak to audiences? I'm a musician by -hmm. training, and, and I did a lot of stuff on the creative side as well. And I just kept realizing that. The fan, the audience is the root of all of what we're talking about. I mean, everything from Disney to Facebook is dependent upon people who have a passionate connection with the product. And so how do you really think about them at the center of what we do rather than as the outcome or the, how do you put it, the means to a financial end of what we do? And that is really driven what I do today which is really build tools that empower audiences and creators and help brands to better understand those audiences.
0: Wow. Wow. So much to unpack there. Let's start with the end, the tools that you help. Can you elaborate on those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we built a gamification engine called AMP. And basically that engine enabled us to, one of the things we realized is if you put something online, let's say you got a dope video, you put it out, you got, 20 million views, you're super happy, come with the next video. How do you reach the 20 million people? And the answer is you can't. The platforms, typically Facebook and Google will tell you how many watch. They'll never tell you who they are. Mm-hmm. So we kept thinking, well, how could you build a system where I could know who's watching my content and I could do that without violating their privacy? I could do it in a way that rewards the audience for their engagement. In so doing, it gives the content owner a better understanding of who's watching and why. So that's the core technology that we built. It solves that problem. And we've built it in such a way that it's present in our own app, which we call Take Back the Mic. You can get it on Android and iOS. And then at the same time, it also can be used and leveraged in other platforms. All of that is to say, it was cool to build the technology, but then it's like, oh, how do you test it? How do you know it actually works? So we created a show some years ago called Take Back the Mic, the World Cup of Hip Hop, that used the tech, to show how you could engage audiences and reward them in real life with a show that we kind of made up, and that show went on to get an Emmy nomination. And we're like, whoa! In our first six months, wow. we're like, we ain't expect that. So let's try it again, and we did it again. Second Emmy nomination. So we're like, oh, wow. there's something there. So we've gone on to do some deals with some really significant companies around interactive media and youth audiences, and then we built our own higher end media asset called the Mike Africa. And that is the first sort of TV format that's born on the continent for it to be exported around the world. And that took our skills in content, our skills in technology, merged them together. And that's how we basically showed people, this is how you build new kind of relationship with the audience, understand them better, respect their privacy, and reward them for their engagement.
0: Wow. Was this always the plan? Like, if you went back to Derek as a teenager, is this what you always wanted to do? Interesting question. You
1: know, Derek, as a teenager, wanted to be a fighter pilot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was like, I knew every military aircraft in the U.S. Air Force. I was living in the Middle East at the time, very close to CENTCOM. I was there during the first Gulf War. I was in Doha. And so that's where U.S. Central Command is based. And I thought that, hey, I want to fight for freedom and justice around the world. And then I, got to um high school like my last half of high school after the first couple i came back to the states and i remember watching boys in the hood by the late great john singleton and there was the character furious styles was the father and he had this quote something to the effect of he told his son there's no place for a black man in the white man's army and i was like oh my god what is he talking about and the more i started looking at the history of certain kinds of military adventurism around the world, I was like, "Mm, what are we really fighting for? and Who are we fighting with and why? And I just had enough questions that even though I got the interview for West Point, which I thought I would go to, I spent a week there my junior year of high school, I switched and I decided not to go to West Point and I went to Harvard instead. And so I had no idea that I was going to wind up in this creative space, except that I always had music flowing through my mind, my soul, my life, my household, to the point where my wife to this day is like, you are singing 24-7. And I'm like, really? Yeah. We were talking about this like a couple of days ago. She's so like, yeah, you always have music coming out. I was like, oh, where? I was like, well, isn't that just what everybody does? She's like, no, that's just you. <laughs> so I think that life put me in the path that I should be on, which was related to creativity and technology and how do we build more than destroy.
0: Uh, how do we build more than destroy it? Let's unpack that. Yeah, let's
1: unpack that. Okay, well, it's interesting because I think that there's all these different ways of exercising power, right? And I had a very interesting conversation recently with a young person, revolutionary ideals and want to change the world and everything. And so, like, you know, we got to fight for our rights. And I'm like, okay, everybody want to fight for their rights. But the fight is the easy thing to see. All right, and let's take it to the extreme. Right, y'all want to be revolutionaries. You know, back in the day, these revolutionaries carry guns. And what happens is people overlook what is the impact of taking a colonized mind, a mind that has been taught to hate itself. Oh, and then you take that individual and you give them a gun. You say you go out there and fight freedom. Give a person who's been taught to hate him and herself. A weapon to fight for freedom, where are they going to point it at? And I think that the revolution that has to happen in our generation is here and it's here. And a lot of people think, well, that sounds so soft and so sweet. I'm like, mm, it is sweet. It's not soft. Though I guess it could be if you think of it the right way. It's not a weak form of revolution. It's a real and lasting form of revolution. Because what we've seen on the continent is so many of our past forebears are the prior generation fought for their freedom so many different ways, and then became free only to become the oppressors of their people. Yes, Colonized mind points its weapons at the people it's been programmed to hate. We need to deprogram our societies, not just in Africa, but around the world. And I think that is done with soft power. It's done with the power of words. It's done with the power mm. of music. It's done with the power of artistry. And that soft power is extraordinarily powerful. Because at the end of the day, it shapes our understanding of reality. And that understanding is what shapes the world around us.
0: Wow. That's so deep. And a lot of words. So you're saying that music creates an emotive connection. So we have, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm trying to rephrase what you're saying, just to make sure I'm on the right track. <laughs> so we have more empathy for one another. Is that what you're yes. saying?
1: That's part of it. and. In one way, it can make that empathic connection. In another way, it can create cross-border understanding. I remember a director, a theatrical director, taught me a song once. Back in the day I was working on a film, and he was there. And he taught me this song. dibe, dibe dipe di be di be onyo melu ya di and that voice that concept that idea it's not in my language but i felt it and mm-hmm. it stayed with me and i taught my choir and i taught a bunch of other students and i shared that message and all of these kids were growing up in the U.S. who knew nothing about Nigeria except for what they saw in the news. I was mm-hmm. like, let me share with you a little bit of what I know of Nigeria, a little bit of what I've been taught. And it just shifts the conversation for a minute. Now, mm-hmm. that's just the beginning. Where we really want to take it is you make that shift, you lay that place for some fertile ground where we can plant a different kind of seed. And then we add to that the messaging that comes from writing that comes from theater, that comes from film and television and music. And you start to give people a new way of understanding those Mm -hmm. around them. Mm -hmm. right? And then all of a sudden, that turns into new realities of who we want to be with, who we want to be like, what we think of as beautiful, what we think of as valuable, what we think of as honorable. And all of that comes from messaging. And the most powerful messaging comes through artistry.
0: Wow. So, you were talking about how it's important to essentially Mm -hmm. enable connections across cultures or at least understanding of other cultures. And you've lived in so many parts of the world. What's been your lesson from Accra to New York to the Middle East? Now you're in Mauritius. What has that taught you in life?
1: I think that the exposure of a human being to the life, culture, hopes, dreams, aspirations, ways of other people deepens our humanity it deepens the humanity of both Mm -hmm. especially if it's done right for me i find that i'm able to travel to many different parts of the world and kind of flow and connect sometimes you fit in more sometimes you fit in less Mm -hmm. but for the most part i enjoy the appearance the experience of connecting with people because i was raised that way i was raised at the intersection of cultures and because of that I'm also able to make other people feel comfortable around me. Mm -hmm. Uh, People of goodwill, people who you find that you can build and grow with. I've been able to draw lots of different types of people into these ideas of how do we build better bridges? How do we leverage art and technology to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I just think it's incredibly valuable. You know, a lot of times people will stick with what they know,
2: Mm with the people
1: who are like them. Whereas I'm like, why not reach out to somebody new? Why not learn something new? Learn a new language, especially for we on the continent. Every African I know is a multilingual, a minimum bilingual, right? You go speak the language at school, you speak another one at home, right? And then if you come up in a big city, you may speak the language of the neighboring peoples, et cetera. My mother spoke five or six different languages. And so my dad speaks like maybe four or five. So, I think that there's something wonderful about that. And I think as we look into this 21st century, Africans are in a way inherently multicultural. Some of it is just the way that our cultures are and our tribes and the different connectivity. Some of it is the legacy of colonialism and dealing with people who are outside. All of it has developed a richness within us and an ability to make connections. That is often hard for people. And I think we should Hmm. use that to be a bridge between one another but also a bridge across the diaspora and a bridge for other people who also need to learn how to move in a globalized world.
0: Wow, what you've just said is just like fire, like roll out the red carpet. (laughs) Well done, DNA. I couldn't say it better than what you've just said. You've enlarged my thinking with regards to the multiculturalism through which we Africans are exposed to. When you said that sentence, I was thinking of, the legacy of colonialism has made us to be yes. more accommodating of other cultures and being able to adapt. So I didn't actually think about, which is very important, the different tribes that we're exposed to. That's right. In Nigeria alone, there are 250 tribes. When I'm speaking to friends outside of the continent, they're a bit shocked. I'm like, yeah, this is just one of the 54 countries. You see. And there are two fifty tribes. See? Official. Official. You see? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and then layer on the top of that, 54 countries where we have different religions, like you said, different colonial legacies. Some were colonized by the Brits, some were colonized by the French, by the Belgians, some were not colonized, like Ethiopia. The richness and the diversity on the continent is just is so beautiful. And I think it's something that we need to wear more proudly. I think there's a connotation that We're tribal, tribal. we're we're almost like it's backwards. Like this is where man originated from and we have evolved past this tribalism. That Almost that message that I've always sensed from the media. And I think that's absolutely nonsense. There's a richness to diversity.
1: 100%. And why do we have that idea that tribal is bad, right? In other countries, it's ethnicity, it's ethnic, mm-hmm. here it's tribal. Tribes. But if you look at the countries where I would argue you've seen the most of people killing their brothers and sisters, I would point to further north mm-hmm. than before we point to ourselves or each other. And I think what happens is you have to ask yourself, well, why is it that when some people killed each other and slaughtered so many of their brothers and sisters We'll point out the ethnic things and this and that. We'll be like, oh well this da 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 and we'll look to those same countries as like the purveyors of human rights. Hmm. And yet when there's conflict within us, it's like, oh my god, tribal conflict, like uh, these guys, they just
0: (laughs) come again. Really?
1: Really? And so I think that why is that? Why is it that it looks one way on one side, another way on another? And it's the storytelling. Who's telling the story? Mm -hmm. Who has the media power to take an idea and amplify it worldwide? right? Because what I talked about first was the cultural power, the ability to make those statements and convey these ideas. But then how do they get heard? That's the other side of what we do. We do the art and we do the technology. The technology is around how do you build the mechanisms, the infrastructure, the tools for amplification of those different ideas, those different voices. And what I think has happened is that certain cultures have dominated global discourse for a long time and have done so in a manner that was designed to benefit and enhance their own material wealth to the detriment of other people. Now you have a society where, look, there's seven plus billion of us around the world, most of them people of color, quote unquote, and they want to see themselves differently. And the new generations coming up want to see themselves differently. And those generations, a lot of them don't really understand the dividing lines. Mm -hmm. And That's where the opportunity lies. If you come to Ghana, you know I'm a simple Accra boy, you will show up in Accra wherever you're from, people welcome you you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying, like it's just a very open culture, we have our own issues, we have our own problems, but I mm-hmm. think there's a fundamental value of respect and curiosity about yes. different people, so folks will think that if I come here and I talk about the upliftment of my people, upliftment of the continent, the upliftment of African culture, then it must be to the degradation, it must require the denigration of other cultures, and I'm like yeah. why? Why can't we all be respected?
2: Mm-hmm. Why can't
1: we all be uplifted? Why can't we all live and thrive? And the reason you have that zero sum game sort of mentality is because the purveyors of globalization initially were the people who, as I said, were benefiting from diminishing other people. So if my benefit is the extraction of resources from your society, whether material, human, or otherwise, then yes, that very nature of that process brings you down in order to lift me up. So that person will automatically presume that for somebody to rise, it must be at the mm-hmm. loss of someone else. But if mm-hmm. you look at the modern world and you say, wait a minute, no. The best value, the most value can be created when you actually create things, when you build and hopefully build together and build across opportunities and markets and cultures. Then you realize me coming up, maybe you could come too. hmm that is just thinking about the upliftment of our own people. I think that there's another level where we have to, as we reprogram our minds, we then have to look within our societies and look at how we treat those who are less than you and I are sitting here with our fancy good English. Everybody didn't get to acquire that. Why? Uh-huh. Right? And how do we, as we think about moving the continent forward, make room for all of us to thrive, particularly the people are often left behind and I just feel like going through that process it enhances our humanity overall but it also enhances our ability to benefit from growing together
0: Wow so well said and so beautiful you spoke about you built the bridge between technology and the arts that's what's yes. kind of like at the heart of your model we've spoken a lot about culture and the arts can we speak a bit more about the tech side
1: sure absolutely so One of the things we realized when we were first getting started is we wanted to build technology that really enabled us to understand the audience, enable them to understand each other, and enable the creator to know who is watching, why are they watching, and do it in a way that respects the privacy of the person that you're trying to connect with, of the fan. And so in order to do that, we realized very early I got some advice from an OG entrepreneur and investor before we even started the company. He's like, before you do anything, before you write a single line of code, you need to sit down and talk to people. I said, like, well, I talk to people all the time. He's like, no, talk to the people you think are your customer, your user, your client, whatever it is. Ask them questions. Find out what they want. I'm like, oh, well, if we build it, then they can test it. Then I like, no, don't test anything. He made me read this book called Nail It and Scale It. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it to any entrepreneur. And they did this study looking at the most successful technology companies over the space of a number of decades. They were looking at what was the recurring theme. And they were thinking it could be timing, it could be market, it could be access to capital, financing, access to markets, whatever. But they found that the thing that was most consistent is the most successful technology companies built something that people wanted. Super simple, right? A lot of people out there building. oh, I got this great idea. I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be hot. So I'll be like this, this, this. go going to do this thing. (laughs) (laughs)
2: but the ones who really
1: won they built something that people really wanted and Mm -hmm. so he was like you need to talk to people you need to talk to your people first so we sat down we went and we spoke with uh, label executives record producers musicians we talked to TV executives film executives agency we talked to artists creators we talked to college students and most importantly high school kids we just Mm -hmm. asked them what they cared about what they wanted out of watching and sharing and amplifying work that they thought was dope. And we learned so many lessons and we've kind of continued that process as we've gone. So we started off with, Oh, we're going to build this engine to literally realizing we had to build an entire ecosystem as we think of it as an echo, 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 mm. something that enabled the content owner to put their work out frictionlessly the content consumer to amplify it and be rewarded for doing so. And then when we launched the model for the continent, we realized that the thing that people wanted, if you were to give them a reward that was tangible and viable and useful, it was actually something very simple, mobile data. And so what we did is we built a program called 70 by 25. It's based on the understanding that when the lockdowns began a year ago for COVID, the internet usage worldwide went up by like 70% in six weeks. But in Africa, we're stuck at about 7% high-speed mobile penetration. And that's because we pay the highest mobile prices in the world, five times the average. So we said, what would it take to take us from 7% to 70% high-speed mobile internet access and usage by the end of 2025? And that is 70 wow. by 25. So embedded in our business model is a cause component. And as we execute along that path, we're able to provide value to our users but also have a positive impact on the continent, which grows the market for people to use our products and services, which makes us stronger as a company as well as the ecosystem of other companies around us. That's what I mean by we shouldn't forget the people who are usually left behind. Those people help us form the majority of our 1.3 billion on the continent. We need to stop trying to be out here as like one little country, another little country. Okay, Niger is a big country, but you know the rest of us (laughs) are just trying to survive. We need to be looking at ourselves as a continental market. And we see that yes. that's happening. We need to accelerate that process. Part of how we contribute to that is to the technology that enables users to earn their data. You don't need money to do it. And that data can then be transferred into tangible value. And later this year, we'll be introducing some additional tools that just, I think, are going to explode that capability in really powerful and impactful ways across the continent. Wow.
0: You know what? What I find that distinguishes us as Africans from other people is we are always so mindful about those that might be left behind. Yes. We are tribal culture, communal. (laughs) (laughs) Communal culture, really, we all have a sense of obligation of moral yes. obligation to those that have been left behind. And I think it's something that we should be very proud of. Some call it a black tax. That's the kinship, thinking about the forest. How do we support them? But to see it as a tax, I think, is the wrong framing. I think it's really about a responsibility to the wider ecosystem and stakeholder capitalism. The whole world is kind of evolving towards that now, aren't they? That's absolutely right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's absolutely right. And I think there's been this
1: old school mentality. Of, oh, yeah, the markets are the people with the money and These mm-hmm. are the folks who you got to serve. And poor people, it's like, oh, for them, we go to charity. Give mm-hmm. some money to make us feel better. We got a surplus of grain. Let's get put out some foreign aid mm-hmm. and send that grain to these countries. And yeah, we'll get paid for it without foreign aid money. So the money never really leaves nice. our bank accounts. We did foreign aid. And I look at this model and I'm like, forgetting that these are all human beings. Even mm. if you're just straight up capitalist, you'd be like, yo, that's a market of people that I could provide goods and services to that could be beneficial to me as a, me. a, as an entrepreneur or business owner. But they don't see the humanity of those people. Mm. So they see them as a viable market. And then what happens is we have been split according to these arbitrary colonial lines. And then decided, oh, yeah, we're going to live and die by that. Why? Because so-and-so has got power in the space defined between those lines. And they don't want to share that power with the next guy. And it's almost always a guy, which is part of the problem, Mm -hmm. right? Because we leave half of the population out of the decision-making. And it happens to be the half of the population that might be likely to make better decisions for a number Mm -hmm. of variety of reasons. We could talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. So now here we are, and you see an entrepreneur in China and it's like, oh, what size of your market? It's like, oh, I got like 1.3, 1.4 billion people. That's my market. It's like, oh, snap. we try trying to invest. Get, put some paper into this. See if we can grow this. Oh, an entrepreneur in India, right? Oh, what's your market? I got 1.3 billion people. You know, it's a big market. Hey, you got that market. Let, like, well, who knows? Why not? Let's put some cash behind it. See what happens. Now here comes your entrepreneur in Lesotho. How you going to do? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like... <laughs> you're you dead for Eswatini, and you're talking about your markets. Eh? It's not going to work for you. And so, basically, we need to think differently. The lines are mm-hmm. arbitrary. The yeah. lines are arbitrary. China's a continent. India's a continent. We are a continent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And mm-hmm. if we start having that discourse between us, between each other, and recognizing the value of serving all of our people, then this, the youngest continent on the planet, mm. can actually become one of the most influential. I always tell people who are asking me, like, oh, why did you move from the States back to Africa? I'm like, that's where the opportunity is. Oh, but Africa is so poor. I'm like, don't, no, don't get it twisted. Africa is unbelievably rich. The problem is Africa is so rich that it has been continually exploited for hundreds of years by everybody who thought that they could benefit from this. It's time for us to benefit from our own material and human and cultural capital. And that means investing in ourselves and investing in each other.
0: Wow. You threw a lot in your answer there. I want to touch on the gender piece. Yes. Where you said a lot of decision-making are made excluding 50% of the population that may be better at making decisions. Yep. Let's chat about that.
1: <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to go personal very quickly. As you know, personally, I think I shared with you, I lost my mom a couple of years ago. God rest her soul which was a very big impact on my life. And I come from a culture where the Akan side of us are actually matrilineal, right? So they have this saying like father maybe, mama's baby. So hmm. in the Akan culture, the son of the king can never be king. It'll be the wow. son of the king's sister. So the most powerful it'll person. The, the sorry,
0: it'll be the son of the
1: king's, of the king's sister.
0: Sister. You. Huh.
1: you see? Because we always know the lineage through the mother. It's but, similar uh, to Judaism. Judaism. Same thing. Yeah. The right. lineage is passed through the mom. And so father, maybe mama's baby. We know. There's no question. Hmm. She was there. We know whose kid that is. And so the most powerful person in the society was never the chief. It was always the queen mother. And what I think I've seen, and this is not to denigrate men, and it's not to deify women. It's just yeah. to acknowledge some of the baseline realities women will typically think more holistically about their community, about the people around them, about the impact of their actions. Yes. And they'll make decisions from that space. Typically, it's not everybody. Some women leaders is horrible. But yeah. for the most part, keteris paribus, all things being equal, they're more likely to. Men are more likely to look out for what do they think makes them more powerful, get more of this thing and that and try to go for self a little bit. I mean, how many of our African leaders have been putting money into Swiss bank accounts. Uh, Meanwhile, the wife doesn't even know the pin. The guy dies, and then where does the money go, right? And so even with your graft and corruption, you're still not doing it well. You're not doing it (laughs) even in a way that benefits your own family, much less society. It's ridiculous. So you think about it. A guy get money, he's trying to spend that cash to look attractive to more women. He's trying to accumulate as many as he can as he goes. How many women do you see they get money and now they're trying to buy men. It's a different dynamic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is a different dynamic. And so I think that part of what we need to do in realizing the mistakes that have been made in the world prior is to say, look at our world today where we have endemic corruption in so many nations around the world, even the countries that report to be the purveyors of freedom and democracy, exposed to be fundamentally and deeply corrupt, right? If you look at what's happened to our economic systems and you'll find that Little flashes, this pandemic, uh, financial crisis, whatever it is, and certain powerful institutions all of a sudden are revealed to not be nearly as strong as they think. Mm -hmm. You know, the airline industry in the United States is worth billions. And then as soon as something hit, these guys, after a trillion-dollar tax cut, still were on the verge of going out of business. Why? What happened to your cash reserves? Oh, there weren't any. Oh, we were having uh, stock buybacks, whatever the case may be. Skip the details on that. The point is, a lot of what looks to be power is not as powerful as it is perceived to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's some of it. The environment. What have we done to this environment such that the, generation, the, the source of all goodness in our lives is at risk? I think some of it is because we've had leadership that is very narrow-minded and very selfish. And coincidentally, it's been very patriarchal so i think that it is high time if we want humanity to succeed to learn some things maybe from some of our ancestry and to recognize that women bring something to the table that's very powerful mm-hmm. and it shouldn't just be like oh yes well you know this woman she's a good mother and, and somebody's sister you have to respect that like no 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 she is potentially the leader we need maybe mm-hmm. the leader we deserve and we should be cultivating more female leadership in society now i could be wrong and 25 years from now, you're going to look back and be like, look at these women. They told us we should vote for these women and they collecting dudes everywhere. They're blinging it. You know what I'm saying? They ain't even feeding their children. All their money is in the Caymans, you know? But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think that we'll see a much better ROI by investing more heavily in the women in our society.
0: Powerful, powerful. I've always asked this question on, you know, gender on the continent. And I'm like, it's a very complicated topic Firstly, yes. I think women are more empowered on the continent than what the media portrays Yes exactly. secondly, there's no heterogeneity. We have some patriarchal cultures on the continent and some matriarchal cultures that's right and I love that you were talking about your Akran culture so tell me more about that so your half account where's your father from? Ka. Ka. Okay. so
1: Ga from the Accra region that's where we draw our a Niger love, so the Ghana people migrated originally from around, I guess, ancient Egypt, and then they came down and around apparently to Congo and up through Cameroon, and they settled in Illefe and
0: Yoruba.
1: Yes, exactly, and then they came through to the eastern part of Ghana, and then they eventually sat in uh stayed in the Accra region, and so you will find that there are a lot of words in Ghana Yoruba. That It's literally the same words, they just have different meanings. Yes.
0: Wow. And comparing and contrasting between matriarchal and patriarchal cultures in Ghana, can you just give your observations on that?
1: It's interesting because the Akan have had such a powerful impact across the society that I think that even amongst the patriarchal groups in Ghana, the women have a privileged role. This is not to say that women have equality in Ghana. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. They don't have equality mm-hmm. of opportunity, pay, education, anything. But historically, there is a power in their women society. Women would be the traders. Women would carry and control the money. Men might go to war, but women made the paper. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't like, hey, you guys, you go and do this thing, and then you come and dash a woman something. That's relatively recent. I would also argue that in some of what I see and believe in my culture and potentially in other places around the continent is that some of these deeply patriarchal ideas that really diminish the value of women are imported. And now is where I'm going to get myself in trouble. Perhaps you too well, can apologize successful. in advance.
0: No, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. you. Me.
1: I mean, they're imported <laughs> and they were all brought wrapped in beautiful gifts of religion. Thank and you. so what happened is they brought these religious ideas that not necessarily rooted in reality that said that men are here, the women are less, the woman is like the spare rib of the original man. And I'm like, come now, really? Conceptually, okay, whatever. But practically, a woman must obey, she must subjugate herself to her man. But why? What if he is lacking in wisdom? Should they not be peers? In Christianity, we talk about the Father, the Son, and, and the Holy... What's Holy next? God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Holy right? Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit. But really, an artist said this to me years ago, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. He's like, in a normal life, let's take the religion out of it. You show up at a household, and you see the Father and the Son. Who are you looking for next? Mm-hmm. Maybe mummy, right? But the giver, the creator, the giver of life, who does that represent? Mm-hmm. And rather than recognize that there is a feminine power and energy at the source of the universe, the giver of life. We have literally ghosted it. He said, we got a father and a son. Oh. Hey, the other one in the Holy Ghost, it's beyond knowing, beyond understanding. But not, we should get no credits despite the profound power that this brings to the table. And so these external ideas, they merge with our own belief systems. When I learned about Yoruba faiths and history, I learned most of what I knew in Brazil. Wow. I learned about Orishas. I learned about Yemeyao, Batala, Xangô in Brazil. Brazil was the first place I went where I saw these giant statues of massive, dark, obsidian, muscular gods, men and women, the representation of black excellence and divine power. I've never seen that in Africa. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I haven't seen it. I Mm. saw it there. And so what happened to us? What happened Mm. to our belief in ourselves? And part of what I believe happened is we imported these patriarchal ideas along with the, in the package of faith. Mm. And it taught us that the, what God wants is for the men to be dominant and the women to be subservient. And I think that's not right. I think that, that may have been what the church wanted for centuries, millennia. The
0: institution. But,
1: yeah. But it has nothing to do with the will of God. In my language, the God, unyami, right? Or in God, the word for God, people will be like, oh, is God a or he or a he or she? I'm like, what are you talking about? God is God. The word we apply for he or she does not apply. First of all, in my language, there's no word for he or she. <laughs> it's just like you. <laughs> That's it. And then the language you use for humans is not the language you use for the divinity. So we have our hmm. own understanding of the world, which I would argue is equally valid, if not more. And because we've imported so much from the outside, and embraced it deeply. Ghana is arguably the most Christian nation on the planet. We've taken those ideas and we use them to dominate some of the most valuable members of our society. So now we have an excuse to do it. And the men in power benefit from doing so. And there your interface with the colonists is more practicable when you have men talking to men. They didn't want to hear from their women. Why would they want to hear from yours? And so we accepted the poison, the mistake that someone else made, and we've made it our own mistake. And now is the time. I think to lead, help mm. other people realize that things could be different, things could be better. Shocking to look at the United States of America has not had a female president to this day. First vice president is a black woman, by the grace of God, Alhamdulillah. But not a female president. Pakistan has had a female president. Mm, yeah, But not the United States. We have to start realizing that just because something came from outside doesn't make it better.
2: Mm. We need
1: to start looking at how do we draw from our own wisdoms and our own culture to generate value and hopefully be able to help other people find the value in their societies as well
0: my brother i don't even know where to start i don't know where to start i want to See, scream they're, they're going to be
1: tweeting me <laughs> Oh, the ministers are going to kill me well, what are you gonna do
0: <laughs> i want to scream there's just so much in what you said that's so loaded i'm so wise the peace on religion is that's a whole nother conversation well you know what you were speaking about the holy spirit my best friend has a theory that the holy spirit is a female yes the holy spirit has a nurturing role comforting role intuitive role and in the beginning god said let us make him in our image who is us is us so a lot of what you said i completely agree with and then there's the cultural overlay of there's the truth of what the word of God says. And then there's what man has said, what the word of God says. And it exactly. was packaged in a way that was convenient for the colonialists to achieve their objective. Right. Absolutely. So a lot of the time we have people just being extremely religious and not really searching the scriptures through the lens of their illumination of the holy spirit they look at the scriptures through the lens of religion the institution the rules and regulation that society the church society has said is what should prevail so yeah no this has just been phenomenal
1: i'll add one other piece to that equation right so if i go to any household in ghana we usually have the pictures of our family up on the wall on I guess this I don't know what you call a balustrade or whatever all around the walls in the, mm-hmm. the city mm-hmm. and you see all of these beautiful brown faces it's your grandfather your great-grandmother everybody's there uncles and aunties and then there'll be one blonde-haired blue-eyed dude one dude the rock star. One dude looking like Hans you know what I'm saying Hansel and Greg, right there and you like hey hair. this is men. they're like oh this is jesus christ jesus. <laughs> i'm like hey wait, you said jesus and the guy looked like he came straight out of nowhere then i'm reading the bible because me too i can read they said the man has bronze feet feet of bronze woolly hair he come from the middle east i've been to the middle east i've seen the bread down. Like that. it doesn't look like that and then you all stop and think ah, oh, all right maybe there's some Propaganda small involved in this team. (laughs) Huh? Some propaganda small. No. You're you're buying it for hook, line, and sinker. And then you look like the sucker. You know what I'm saying? That's what winds up happening. I don't remember if it was Joma Kenyatta or or whatnot who said that when the colonialists came, we had the land and they had the Bible. They taught us to pray with our eyes closed. And when we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible.
2: We need Hmm. to integrate.
1: I'm not saying that religion doesn't have its place. I'm not saying that people should not have faith. We are... Human, we lend towards that, that curiosity, that seeking those mm-hmm. universal truths. I think it's natural and it can be good. But the reality is people use it as a cudgel to denigrate yes. other people yes. and to diminish the humanity of other people. And you said it right. It's not just about the word of God. It's about who's interpreting it for you. It's mm-hmm. interpret these things for ourselves. And I think the biggest thing that we need to do in our shift in our understanding of faith is to put more faith in our women and let mm-hmm. them be at the foreground. Let them find their own power. And we think about it deeply in our company. We're 50-50 men women. It's very rare for a technology company. But we realize that women-led companies are more successful. They mm-hmm. get better ROI for their shareholders. They're more likely to achieve a significant exit. And when you look at the societies that had the best response to the COVID crisis over the last year, the women-led societies far outperformed. I mean, how much evidence do we need before we start to try something new? mean, last thing I'll say about it, just for the record, the reason it doesn't happen is because dudes is insecure. And Mm -hmm. you hear me say this, and they're like, oh, like, are you a feminist? I'm like, no, I'm just a dude. I'm looking at the stats. I'm looking at the people in my life. I'm seeing the reality. And what I would pray for the brothers that listen to this is don't think this as something that makes us less good. I'm still super fly. However, it doesn't make me less for someone to have more. That is where we started this conversation. If we invest in one another, we can all grow
0: together. Wow. Thank you so much, Derek. If anyone wants to reach you, how can they get hold of you?
1: You can check me out. Obviously, you can try our technology at takebackthemic.com. We're going to be launching a bunch of new features. You can also see it on Android and Google Play Store as well as the iOS store. You can catch me on Twitter at DNA TV. If you go into CBTM app, you can check me out. I think it's DNA TV3. And definitely love to hear from people and be in touch there's a lot happening this year and hopefully we will continue to make an impact
0: incredible you have to come back we have a lot to talk about
1: oh charlie <laughs> as for this one this is just the beginning The beginning. we need hey, a series no my sister we need a series. I, I just get these started what?
0: <laughs> we started with family business i mean religion and gender what nothing we didn't talk about i know right we politics we didn't talk about politics That's yeah yeah
1: about. politics gets tricky i usually skip yeah. that
0: yeah. I'm talking about In US Africa. politics.
1: I'll have something to say about that, but African politics, yeah. hey, these people, <laughs> I beg.
2: <laughs> I
0: want to live my life and enjoy it. I time. want to live my life. I, ah. I want to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been incredible having you on. Thank you. Thank I've you. learned so much.
1: Thank you so much, Nikki. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome.
0: So I've had a couple of weeks to reflect on that podcast recording, and honestly, it was just one of those conversations that truly touched me and moved me. And I couldn't reduce it to one thing, one takeaway (laughs) for the longest time. And it was upon listening to it a couple of times that you might not have noticed this one line that DNA said that was so poignant and just so powerful. And he said, a lot of what looks to be power is not as powerful as it purports to be. And that reminded me of a book I read a while ago called The Power Paradox by Dasha Keltner. And in this book, Keltner explains what the power paradox is. And he says it is this. We rise in power and we make a difference in the world due to what is best about human nature. But we fall from power due to what is worst. We gain a capacity to make a difference in the world by enhancing the lives of others But the very experience of having power and privilege leads us to behave in our worst moments like impulsive, out-of-control sociopaths. Not my words, Keltner's words. (laughs) And honestly, I think it really resonates with where we are in our world. And Keltner argues that how we handle the power paradox as micro-families, businesses, and societies Guys, not only us on a micro scale, but ultimately affects us on a macro scale. So it will affect our families, our neighborhoods, our communities and our societies. And then Keltner also speaks about the difference between soft and hard power. So soft power is speaking about the ability to attract and influence. Hard power is speaking to coercion and force. So you influence soft power through things like culture, ideas. Art and institution. And through hard is through things like military might, invasion, economic sanctions. And in his book, he argues that that the research suggests that there is a surprising and lasting influence of soft power compared to hard power. So, soft is relational, it's predicated on reputation, it thinks about the positive impact on people's lives. And the cumulative impact of this soft power can really shift the world. In Keltner's words, power is a medium through which we relate to one another. Power is about making a difference in the world by influencing others. And I'm just going to end with this, that, like I said, I think we're in a really interesting juncture in our world, where not only are we kind of crippled by heaps of social issues, but we as Africans have the opportunity to be powerful, to shape culture through the export of our culture, ideas, art, and our institutions. Somewhere along the line, humanity got left behind, and humanity was forgotten. And it is time to bring humanity back into conversation. Power is about virtues. Power is about relationships. And power is about people. So go out and seek soft power, not hard. Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you and take care.